The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Saunders Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. How can we augment our thinking spaces to increase creative solutions? How can we make those solutions real by mastering complexity? Julio Mario Otino and Bruce Mao ask and answer these questions in their ambitious and visually stunning work, The Nexus. In their book, Otino and Mao take on a big subject, how to augment your thinking by integrating art, technology, and science. It is a thought-provoking and curiosity-enhancing book, perfect for rewilding your attention with its glorious footnotes and gorgeous visuals. Our takeaways, not to plot bust, for being a nexus thinker. 1. Experiment. The world is too uncertain to spend too much energy and time overly planning and analyzing whether it's from data or from intuition. We have to learn to dance between data and intuition, to be in both the rational and emotional at once. Two, develop the art of coexistence. We are trained and like to think in terms of black and white, A versus B. We have to learn how to hold opposing ideas at the same time and yet be still able to act. This is hard, but artists do it all the time and leaders can learn. Three, complex systems require us to think more and more in terms of trade-offs. And complex systems exhibit a property called emergence, where literally behaviors we can't predict emerge as a result of the system. The job of leaders is now to create conditions that allow for successful emergence. And four, the best opportunity to tackle the world's greatest problems those of unprecedented complexity, is by working at the nexus where art, technology, and science converge. Otino and Mao challenge us to think beyond the boundaries of our specialties and training, to be curious about how others in unrelated fields discover knowledge and find their creativity. It is thinking for our age where design becomes the method for discovery. We truly enjoyed our conversation with Julio, and are very grateful for him taking the time. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them 
with the world's great minds. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. I'm delighted. Perhaps you could start off with telling us a bit of how you came to this book and the motivation for you in writing it. So people pay a lot of money to be in curated events, call it the Aspen Institute, TED, Renaissance, you know, even Davos, where you get all of these people from different walks of life, and you get to see people who are operating at the frontiers of their respective domains. And in some sense, a good collection of those people are all part of any major university, except that these people walk in sort of parallel lives and they never sort of interact with each other unless you decide to actually curate an event to bring them together. So I have had a lot of experience trying to do those curation events in the university. But what I also found is that we all get trained in life and we acquire an education formally, okay, to kind of get a pair of glasses that allows us to see the world in some way, okay? So an economist gets a pair of glasses that is different than a political scientist or a historian or an electrical engineer and we really consciously try to acquire a second pair of glasses, okay? And we can be very, very successful with that pair of glasses, okay? But the problem is that there are so many misconceptions about how one of the people who are using those pair of glasses see another person using a different pair of glasses, and some of the biggest misconceptions that I found were how people in science see artists and how artists see people in science. Uh, people in science, they are supposed to be rational, logical, methodical. They don't see the passions that are behind the things that they do. And people from the science side see artists as people who are constantly inspired. They produce great things in this burst of uh, epiphanies. And those two things are completely wrong. But we wanted to see what was possible to do in the middle and have people who, if not acquiring a second pair of glasses, it's very rare that someone, after being a successful in a career in science will try to become an artist. That's not the point. The point is, can you equate these people with more than what they produce? Uh, someone in plastic arts with a painting or a sculpture, but more with how they thought. What's the thinking process behind doing what they do? The same thing would apply for someone from art to understand how someone in, I don't know, theoretical computer science may think of something. So it's understanding how people think 
And if you can expand your brain to accommodate those things, it's more of a joining up of things rather than kind of trying to glue things artificially. Is trying to have some part of your brain that could accommodate for how other people may think about an issue. And if we can sort of inspire people to open, I mean, you have to be conditioned because at the end of the day, this is more than changing a habit. It's, it's more of a way of kind of living. I'm probably exaggerating here, but it's not a habit. It's just trying to change something very deep inside you that would sort of expand the way that you think in a way that becomes there's some muscle memory there. It becomes an unconscious competence. It, that's one of the things that I found about reading the book, which I, I think is, is an extraordinary work. And um, it made me extremely curious about all sorts of things that um, I found myself wanting to be curious about. But the thing that kind of struck me was something that you said um, just now, which is, some of it was about questioning assumptions and and questioning and the and the one that that really shifted my thinking significantly was realizing that I had fallen prey to um, this idea that you can't you that you can't necessarily see someone's thinking process and then you in the books so elegantly put out how well of course you can when they're an artist because you can see all these drafts and sketches and, and you know, we get that from our kids, right? We see all our kids' various versions before they produce their final piece of work. And then you overlaid this with a, you know, and, and made me question, well, why, of course you could do this in science. You just, you got to look for it. Yeah, it's amazing. So in some areas, the idea is to erase all traces of the scaffold that led you to the idea, okay? I mean, you release a product, you are not interested in everything that went wrong or the history. Okay, here is the iPhone, okay? That's it. Or in math, the same thing. Or in science, the same thing. It's the paper perfectly constructed out there. Once in a while, you get glimpses on how a famous, famous composer composed something, you see the markings, but visual arts, and this is the part that is the most mystifying, you see everything. In fact, people make careers out of this. People who curate uh, uh, shows, art shows, they make a living by showing how an idea built on other ideas and how even two people combine together to produce something. So it's kind of mystifying that in the popular mind, this is equation of art with sudden moments of creation. And they don't see all the perspiration and sweating that goes into realizing something. Of course, the perspiration is present in almost every facet of life, okay? But somehow the mythology, the romantic view of the eureka moment, uh, it's in there embedded in the brains of most people uh, up to now. Yeah, it's like it's supposed to be something that's hidden and then bang, it just 
it just comes. Yeah. That this sort of you celebrate this moment of emergence rather than the process of emergence. Exactly. Yeah. And it was one of the things that really struck me about reading the book is there's been a, a lot of it, it seems that you're going to hit a nice, nice moment in time where people are starting to get curious about the difference between complexity and, and complicated systems. Yeah. And your description in the book is, you know, without question, the best best descriptions <laughs> I've read of it. But it made me think differently about emergence as well, about the idea that these, uh, these, these, um, uh, that a eureka moment can just happen and starting to think more about how do you um, set, how do you more consciously set the, 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 um, the groundwork so it's those moments are more likely because clearly they're valuable, but it's about valuing the process, not just the moment. I think what is really hard is to find people who can explain how they think. Uh, I look for those people. Finding those people, for example, in math, math is, I I am envious of math because a math concept is forever. Okay. Humans can come and go, but that stays there. It's more platonic kind of thing. But finding people in math who can explain how it is that they think is very rare. Uh, but I have tried to even have a series of talks in here where some people are good at this. Architects are really good in telling you how they think about something and giving you the devolution, but architecture is an interesting profession at the top, really, because it's an area where art, science, and technology never cleaved, kind of stayed kind of together in there. And in some parts of engineering, that's also the case. Design actually is something which you could argue that art, technology, maybe parts of science kind of stay together. And that's why Bruce and I could have great conversations. Tell us a bit about the history of how you and Bruce came to know each other and how this book became a thing for the two of you to produce together. So I have been giving talks where some of these ideas have been hinted for a long, 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 long time, essentially from the beginning. Uh, I always have the art side, and when I explain this, I say, well, my mother was a classically trained artist. She never really made a living with that, but I remember going through her works, and and my father was more on the science side, it was in science side, so I grew up surrounded by microscopes and things like that. So I always had this. But at some point, I saw the show in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago called Massive Change. And there was this fellow named Bruce Mao, I never had heard of him, who was the brains behind the show. In fact, one of the rooms in the show is in the very last page of the book when you open the book. And I kind of pay attention to this. And then I discovered through people in the Art Institute that he was moving to the U.S. And I was really overjoyed on that. And then, I don't remember when, one of my friends 
what we live told me, do you know about this person? They are moving to Winnetka, which is where I lived. And then I discovered that he was basically across my home. So I seek him out. We met. Uh, the first idea that I discussed with him was this comparison of art, technology, science across categories and finding that by whatever metric you pick, technology is sort of in between art and science, almost invariably. And we decided maybe we should do something. So we went to a couple of things. I invited him to some events here. I gave him an appointment in design in the university. He invited to some things that he was doing. And we never could push it really far because my day job prevented me from doing, taking time off, really. And Bruce was divesting of Bruce Mao design and going to massive change. So, but we kept talking and talking and talking. And eventually I think the, the deciding factor was when I thought, of course, no one knew how long this will last. Okay. But March hit, you have week, one weekend free, another one, maybe after three or four weekends after contacting MIT press, I called Bruce and said, we should do something in here. And he was the only person, really, that I found when I was describing the concept that understood what the idea was about. Because when you talk with publishers, the vast majority of publishers operate with words. And I know if you read The Catcher in the Ride in different fonts, it doesn't make any difference, okay? I personally like to have a kind of the original first edition in front of me. But but the truth is, there's not much design in, in a book that is only text. And then at the other extreme, you have Taschen and Phaidon, books that are only images, only images. And I couldn't come up with examples of things that there was this interplay between images and words. Uh, I found some books, but they were of the, there was, they, they had an instruction with the text, kind of li- going linearly, and then interspersed figures, but always the same size and always in the same location. And that's not what we wanted. We wanted this kind of more, I mean, one thing that is very clear in the book is that if you are, I recognize that some of the side notes, the font is small. But you will see that if you are in, increasing the font size by two points, in some places, the, the side notes will escape the page. Uh, or you'll have to put in another page, which is not good. So uh, we started designing this. And there are parts that no one will know. Uh, for example, every chapter, there, there are things that are obvious, like making the contents of the book a design aspect of the book, because 
uh, we put a table of contents that MIT wanted, but the chapters are not mentioned in there. But in every, every chapter, there is a name followed by a phrase, followed by a sentence. All the chapters are title, phrase, sentence. And there are parts in which, so for example, if you look at the index, the index in a book, normally you do it, you put it in there, however long it is, that's it. So it may be that occupies four pages and a half. We did not want to leave a half blank. So the index occupies exactly two open pages with no blank space whatsoever. And why is that? It's because I, I think that the this construction, these hidden things, and mentioned in a few, will affect how the reader uh, experiences the book. We wanted the book to be a design object as well. Well, I think you feel that when mm. you when you go through it. I mean, there's the obvious of the the, the imagery per se, but um, I had noticed the, the the way you talk about the chapter headings. I had no, and I started looking for the sentence, mm. but because I because I, I I don't think I consciously acknowledged that the sentence was sparking me, priming me in, in a way that just, just someone else's quote that's often used, that people often use at the start of, of chapters. And I found that really intriguing and it gave, it was quite a useful signpost um, as you went through because each chapter, you know, one of the challenges you must have had writing it is you know that you're speaking to various audiences who aren't necessarily sort of equally balanced in art, technology, and science. <laughs> so you have to sort of prime people to look for the bits. Yeah, that's that's an issue. Uh, for example, I'm per perfectly aware that... So I have to pass the bar of historians and historians of science... Uh, there are parts in which I feel on very sure ground. My research has been on nonlinear dynamics and complexity, chaos. A part that I take pains to indicate, this is a metaphor, is when I talk in terms of right brain, left brain, because uh, of neuroscience. So I, I take a pain explaining this will not get into anything deep in neuroscience. I quote a couple of people. But the question is how to, within the constraints of 360 pages, in all the topics that you hit, hit all of them at a kind of even level. Because there are parts, frankly, I could say so much more, and parts in which I'm saying almost everything I know. Uh, I could say more, but um, the distillation is there. So the question is, how do you address all of those audiences? Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the book is about two things. It uh, may not appear directly this way, but if you look in the back of the book, you have to put two keywords for indexing and is design and, and business. But the other meta words that we were asked to provide and we decided was technology, education, 
architecture for some reason they put and culture uh, so that's a big landscape in there there's an interesting insight i think that you that you bring with the book um which we have been um tossing around in our own um writing for our next book so uh, I don't know if we've got a common person to thank for the insight or whether it just sort of came to us like the eye, you know, invented different times yeah. in different ways. But this idea of whole brain, this idea of left brain, right brain, yeah. and this idea of, of um, coexistence of multiple different ways of thinking, yeah. and it seems that um, one of the one of the insights that comes through in the book is the importance of leaders being able to do that and being able to foster that in other people. And we find this all of the time working, particularly in the AI and data space, is that the only way that humans can get their handle around some of these complicated issues, before we even get to complex, but complicated issues, is to think in terms of either or. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. just sort of naturally fall into this binary way of thinking. And it's very hard to break your way into thinking about coexistence. Yeah. And how do you, do you have a meta rule for how to kind of have this coexistent thinking? Uh, let me tell you one part in which it became clear. So uh, sometimes when you give a talk to a business audience, they ask you, when was the moment of epiphany that you thought you had to write this book. And I can tell you what I tell those audiences, which is all true, except that it was not an epiphany. It just, it was all there, okay? But regarding the coexistence, a, a moment in which it became clear that this had to be an important issue was I was invited to be part of a small group. You can even find how small it was if you put... Niels Bohr, you know, the Bohr was one of the few people who could stand up to Einstein. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we quote in the book, he said, uh, you are not thinking, you are merely being rational, he told Einstein. So Niels Bohr put my name and put Roger Penrose. Penrose won the Nobel Prize of Physics maybe four years ago. So there was an event organized by the Danish Royal Society at the Bohr Institute, okay? And there were maybe 10 people there who gave talks. And Niels Bohr was the person who coined this term complementarity about something in potentially two things, but it becomes once, once you design to examine it. And the example, the typical example is light. When you examine it in a question that has to do with how it travels, it's a wave. When you examine it in the way that it interacts with matter, is a particle. And Niels Bohr, and I put this in the book, had this Cubist painting in his study. Uh, so I got that initially from the archives in there, in which he will use the Cubist painting to explain people 
if you look at this issue in this particular way, you see this. If you look at it in this other way, you see that. I think that the ability to, if not reconcile extremes, but have them both floating in your head without going to the either or directly, I, I think it's going to be a crucial quality of leaders in the future because there are so very few issues that are so clearly black or white. So at least admitting the possibility that it's okay to have contradictory ideas in your head, which it will happen if you expand your brain to accommodate this larger set of thinkings. There will be question, times in which one idea will be the opposite of another one. So the idea of keeping them at least for a while in your head until you rationalize how is that you could go one way or the other one, I think it's essential. So I have had lots of conversations about this um, with people who are in completely different areas. So for example, obviously some idea on how can rationalize to have an Islamic bank must have gone through the head of some people because uh, money and interest is not something that is compatible with Muslims. Uh, so I discussed that with the issue I don't put in the book, but some people in the business school in here. Or there are so many issues in which, um, by the way, Regarding the pair of glasses, I, I have one, again, I, I didn't put in the book, but came from a, a friend of mine who said, wow, this may be a good example of this. He said about acquiring a second pair of glasses. He said, this is a fellow who has, I don't know, fast cars and races them in some circuits somewhere. Okay, you go rent time there and instructors tell you how to drive like a race car driver. He said, the way that you turn a car, he said, is you move the steering wheel. But that's not how a race car driver turns a curve. It's more about balance, uh, front wheel, back wheels, acceleration and braking, but if you want to be able to turn the car like a race car driver, you have to completely abandon the pair of glasses that you had on how to turn a car in normal everyday life and replace it by that. Mm. And so that's an extreme case. And obviously, race car drivers don't turn curves like that when they're driving in the middle of Monaco, okay? But I, I think the idea that for some issues you can look at it with some perspective and be conscious that you're using one perspective and then using another one. Acquiring that consciousness, I think is essential in my view. And that's practice and... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and delaying intuition. So not not leaping to, so, to a conclusion. Yeah, I, I think that... you can't see the other side. I think one drawback of over, and I have seen lots of examples of this, of over-analytical minds is that you tend to clean problems 
too much to fit it within the structure that works within your skill set. And then you end up solving something correctly, but the problem has so been cleaned up that the context has been lost and the solution has no use. If many of the biggest problems that are coming at us lack structure, and yet people are highly incentivized to put, to put structure around problems, does that over, how do you prevent that oversimplification? How do, you, how do you structure and know that you've kept the essence of the, the correct structure of the problem? Having lots of machinery and even having lots of data that someone coming more from the artistic side will disregard the data and say, well, let's go with intuition having lots of data and lots of machinery, even if you have the best minds analyzing the data and the best machinery, sometimes it's not good. And an example may be the company who has probably the most data and most machinery analyzing things is probably Facebook. And I wouldn't say that that data and machinery has helped them a lot with marketing of Facebook, whereas people who, I don't know if the machinery is good or not, uh, the companies have been doing really great in this slowdown, have been luxury companies like Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Obviously, they don't want to put data there. They, they want to create the illusion that it's all, they just found the things, okay? But I would say they have better marketing. So in marketing, you probably have these two sets of people now. And that I mentioned, you have the analytical people and you have the people who come more from behavioral psychology, kind of more old-fashioned. And clearly, this is obvious, but both extremes are probably not that good. You have to have a good marriage in between the two things. Uh, but most people have a tendency to bifurcate, in my view. There's an interesting dilemma that you pick up on, which is, you know, there's that saying, the messy middle, where no one can kind of find their way out of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's, but you point to another M word, which is marriage, and it's how to put these together so that they become more complementary. Yeah. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky trade-off, and it's but it's there's almost a new tribalism around this. Are I know, you, I know. Are it's you an intuitive of, or a data-driven decision maker? And I think you have to be both. Uh, I I give examples here and there on how even Da Vinci was much more of a rationalist than people thought, and there's no question that the best mathematicians are completely intuitive. Intuition is you you dream something, you imagine something, and then you go about proving it. But you don't start logically going towards something and say, well, we ended up in here, this is what I... No, you you have to have those two things, even though externally we think it's all about logic. 
And the, the, of course, there is, there are incentives in many areas to remove the part that led to the result, remove the scaffold, remove the intuition part, because it seems more magical. And some people have created the allure that the, the steps there, no, it just happened. And, and probably there are examples on how I know, David Bowie composed something in 15 minutes or, or Paul McCartney or people like that. But more often than not, it's kind of sweating the details. Mm, and once yeah. in a while you see how I know, Bob Dylan did 23 drafts of something before coming with the one that he wanted. And but we don't teach any of that. No, and like you say, we don't we don't actually ask people necessarily the thinking process. It's either magical or it's mundane. You know, you kind of get caught yes, with either of those two. There's a, a and when you were talking about mathematicians, we use an example a lot in um, some of the, the the work that we do when we're working with companies. Um, that Marcus du Satoy, who's a mathematician in, in the UK, wrote a great book called The Creativity Code. And he actually goes to great lengths to describe his thinking process for choosing a proof, a mathematical proof. And and the, the thing that struck me about that was, um, one, it's very intuitive, but it's based on the judgment of, is this interesting? Is this worthy? Which seems much more artistic. Absolutely, it's absolutely. Much more artistic. Yeah. I mean, the biggest difference of people in science in the university is everybody who arrived at the place has been, can check all the marks. They did something great. After that, the difference is on the taste that you have to pick things that you want to do. Okay, and let's face it, the biggest benefits in, for their careers of people come when you have picking something that is simple and you are the one who was able to produce the first draft of that solution. But is at the end of the day, it's taste, it's just taste. I'm curious about there's a the section you talk about um, converging domains to encourage creativity. And yeah, you give a history of some of these wonderful schools throughout history: the Bauhaus, Black Mountain College, Harry Holtzman's transformation was it was a it's a wonderful find for me yeah. to come across yeah. in your book. Yeah. And in our work, we combine technology neuroscience, cognitive psychology, philosophy, design, that's how we bring, we bring all of these modes together. Yeah. But it's taken years of two people who come from the humanities and engineering to mm. put those things together. But I wonder about the, the sort of mindset of bringing it all together and how that has created so much more creativity by combining the domains, how you think about that as an academic running a school, how do you think about how might we be able to encourage more of that in the current educational system, which seems to be driving more and more specialization yeah. more people coming through college and a degree and they do very little other than that. It seems like trends going against you. 
at the undergraduate level, it's kind of easier. You just declare who you are. This is the view of who we are. And if you want, if you think you fit with that view, come on in. Mm. And every major university can do this. I mean, it's insane how the acceptance rate in, in here is like 6% in engineering. Okay. And what we say is, yeah, we want you to be really good on the left brain side of things, but we want you to have at least an inclination to develop the right side. And if you think you fit, come on in. And then you have a situation in which people converge because you will go, you go and do a PhD and it's a second convergence. Okay. Uh, when you are in grade school, you are creative and you don't know boundaries and you produce is almost a really very interesting pieces in art. And then you learn more and you get confined. Then you do a PhD and you get a second confinement. But there are people who finish and you need to find them who are not ruined by this. And uh, for example, in neuroscience, uh, one person I found here in Northwestern is uh, in psychology, Katarina Gratton. Uh, the last name is Italian, really. Uh, in what is an amazing coincidence, her grandfather or great-grandfather was the fellow who created the observatory in the city in Argentina where I got my degree, okay? See, I mentioned her because she's an example of someone who has kept things together and she can understand these things. And you see more and more people coming into academia who seem to have a broader view of people who preceded them 10, 15 years ago. The drawback is that there are several drawbacks. One is tenure, okay? You have six years to prove your metal. And if you do work with lots of people, invariably the question will be, who's the leading voice in this? There are five people here who was the intellectual leader of this space? So if you're a young faculty and half of your production is with other people, you're skating on thin ice. Why? Because by definition, most of the people doing the judging are going to be more conservative than you are. The same thing happens for election to any major academy or uh, because they operate within boxes. Sometimes the boxes encompass lots of people, but nevertheless, it's a box, okay? So, for example, in the National Academy of Engineering, you have a boxes, as you can imagine, the computer science is one box, computer engineering is another one, uh, chemical engineering is another one, mechanical, and people who are in between, you have a problem being judged. You go to the National Academy of Science and 
there is one box called engineering science, so it's all of them that box. But nevertheless, it's a box. And then you have another one that is applied physics, okay? And another one that is, I don't know how many boxes there are there. I was elected to the National Academy of Sciences a couple of months ago, and I had to pick one box, okay? And the box that you pick originally is the box of the people who pick you, okay? But but a, a lot of the things uh, have these labels. And we're seeing how useless the, the labels are because if I show you what someone did, accomplishments, and I say these two people won the Nobel Prize, tell me if they won it on physics, chemistry, or even medicine is physiology and whatever. And sometimes you cannot tell. It's just you cannot really tell. Uh, I mean, there are, there are examples of people, for example, a friend of mine, she won the Nobel Prize of Chemistry maybe three years ago, Francis Arnold. And I, I save an email that I exchanged with her because he's priceless. So we were discussing something. I think I was asking help for the, some promotion or something like that. And she says, well, I don't have time now to do it. Uh, and then the, the end of the email said, regarding the things that she was working on, she said, I'm doing chemistry now, exclamation mark. And a week after, she wins the Nobel Prize of Chemistry, okay? And for her, she didn't regard chemistry as her judging environment, but the people who award Nobel Prizes decided that's what she wanted. So you, you have this problem of labels, and I don't subscribe to the idea that you can be a dilettante and just move through. I think you have to really know something well before you can really try to change it, okay? In fact, one of the lessons that I put in there is uh, learn the craft and then set it aside. But it's very hard. I, I, and sometimes it's an issue of knowing enough but not being completely contaminated with a dogma that allows you to do something significant because people don't stop you saying, well, we tried this before the didn't work. Uh, but I think everything that I have been telling you and we have been exchanging ideas is how this aspect of creativity is kind of hidden in, in most parts of conventional education. Uh, you see the distilled results of what people have been thinking about, but you don't sometimes see all the dead ends that they went into producing the idea. And I think things would be so much more interesting if you can reveal some of those things because there could have been really valiant attempts that didn't go nowhere, but they are good from an educational viewpoint. Well, we must see that in lots of different places too with like publication bias in science. If we could see all of the, the, um, the experiments that didn't work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting insight that um, came together for me towards the end of the book, which is perhaps it was perhaps a little counterintuitive that um, you know we we're sort of indoctrinated with the the idea that that it's the young people who break the mold, who break the paradigms. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of um, structure of scientific revolution type stuff. And you talk about that from a young people, yes, conceptually, but um, the, the older you get, the better you get at experimenting, you know, essentially the experimental mode because you, 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 you're just your scope of experiments is bigger. And we use the explore exploit dilemma a lot in, in our workshops because it actually helps people really frame whether they should go and do something new versus you know, exploit what they have. And I just thought that was really interesting to to think about as you move through your career or as you move through a complex um, problem, being um, thinking consciously about experimentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I give the example of Cezanne there as someone who kept experimenting towards the end. But you see examples, uh, I know, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, I mean, Louis Bourgeois. I mean, these are people who have remarkably long careers and they never stagnated at one point. Is the, the issue of becoming a caricature of yourself. Or I think I quoted the term from one art critic, Terry Trouchot, I think, is the suffering from importantitis, that you did something great and then you want the next thing that you do to be equally great uh, and you get paralyzed. I mean, uh, obviously there are people who came from nowhere. I mean, you create Hamilton. How do you do? What's your next play? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and, the, and so the question is that not paralyzing you, that you, you, you want to, continue to evolve and if the second thing that you do is not doesn't receive the critical acclaim that the first thing that you did received that's okay life is long you 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 can have several versions of yourself i definitely like that as a as sort of a an, an idea that that finished up in the in the book one of the other things that um i had as a burning question is um if in in complex systems, and the idea that there's a um, the, the property of emergence that, yeah. that and you cannot predict that that is mm-hmm. emergent properties, you know, whatever they happen to be, consciousness, for example, that, mm-hmm. it's not predictable. How do you think about advising leaders to 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 bring? that kind of thinking into their skill set because it's so uncomfortable to just allow something to emerge that you can't put on a performance plan or put in a in a yeah. in a report to Wall Street. You can't sort of say, well something's going to emerge. That just that's not an acceptable answer. No, I think you you want to leave room for the possibility of emergence. You want to have some structure but I, I have said, and I said in my own role in here, the function of a leader is to provide conditions for successful emergence. And I, not every bet I have made has been successful, but there have been some in which you identify the, the right kind of people, 
you give them resources and they come up with, it's like giving them a lit match and they come with a forest fire, okay? But not everything should be, okay, well, good things will happen, uh, but not everything should be as detailed as a map because uh, I, I give a lot of play to the idea of the map and the compass, okay? I, if you want to have something creative, you need this idea of the compass, the inner functioning of the organization, the one that seems to produce things without really seemingly uh, articulated plan there. Sometimes you you try to do it by design, uh, uh, but it has to be part of something that becomes the very fabric of the place. Uh, in some cases, yeah, you try to bring this, I mean, example that I think should be better known than is, is the Lunar Society, uh, when all of these top people kind of congregated, discussed things, the, the problem is they left no written records. Uh, we know that they existed. We know that they are progressive. We know some of the ideas. And in some sense, this goes back to the what we were discussing at the beginning. You get all of these top people, and by design, you could curate this. Maybe the next idea will emerge out of there. There's definitely, to me, the practical, the really practical advice in some ways that, that comes through. It's sort of just throw yourself into this, throw yourself into a bit of art, a bit of science, a bit a bit of yeah, technology, yeah, yeah. pick up the mindsets, allow them to cross over, um, let time do its thing. And um, I worked with someone once who encouraged me to, to paint everything with the same size paintbrush. And when it comes to sort of, transposing ideas and there's a bit of that that's in this book you know it's mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really nice way to think about the kind of key lessons from different parts yeah so one thing that i will have a problem with is if i'm giving a if i'm giving a talk or even a, a conversation like with the two of you but I oh, know, geared towards the audience's MBAs, okay? And they asked me, okay, give me the five things that people should walk away and do tomorrow to be more of a nexus thinker. I don't have an answer to that, okay? It's a, if, you be, if you believe that things can be reduced to a simple algorithm of what, almost by definition, you are not going to be. Maybe get a, a broader set of friends or maybe increase your reading list. Maybe include things that deviate a little bit from what you do and pick the opposite of that. But it's hard to summarize this in a way that can be, okay, these are the three things that you need to do to implement the ideas. It's, it's more of a... If, it's more than changing a habit. It's, it's, it's kind of expanding how you think, and that's not easy. Mm. We have a we have a quite a diverse group of children, um, and we have uh, three in college at the moment. Um, 
And you could throw them each into the categories. One is an artist, one is a scientist, and one's a technologist. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so Very we sort of have about a nexus like that, you're right. the family together. <laughs> Um, and what's interesting is actually... Well, and then that's chaos. And then there is... Well, that is chaos when we bring them all together. But if I allow myself to actually follow their passions and 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 embrace the privilege of being a parent of, of really intelligent, interesting children who are going on and learning things that you don't know anything about, um, I can find myself, uh, you know, pushing myself into those new areas. Yeah. Yeah. So I have two sons... One did physics and math, double major in Caltech, and then PhD in math. The other one is history and political science. But they are best friends. They can have conversations. And we shouldn't think of ourselves as especially here, but you want that to happen at every level. You want... I, I, I don't think people enjoy the articulation of an idea that they dislike but admire it for what it is and then try to refute it. I mean, it's, I, I don't, we don't want to go and comment on the state of the world now, but um, in some sense, I wanted this book to be kind of optimistic mm. about the possibility of expanding your thinking spaces because the only way to come up with a broader set of broader and more diverse ideas is if you expand the set from the one that you normally occupy to bring components of another set. I mean, that seems obvious to me. And with human curation, because it's yeah peripatetic and a little bit yeah, more yeah, unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, that this is, a, this is a book that could never be written by a machine, could never have been put together by a machine. I love that comment. <laughs> I'm not sure it could be put together by a single mind either. I mean, I, I, I followed Bruce's work since The Incomplete Manifesto forever yeah, ago. Yeah. And if you can see behind, noticing behind us on the bookshelf is MC24. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so I'm quite familiar with some of you know his work, but this is distinctly different because yeah. it is a combination of two minds that I imagine came at this problem with different um, processes, you know, yeah. and different struggles and different ways of getting to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that one of the great things about it, you talk about wanting to be able to see process and at the beginning of the discussion, you talked about how you can see and you know they'll have art. Um, exhibitions that actually show the creative process uh -huh. sketch that, that becomes the painting. And there's something about the way that you produce the book that I almost feel like we're witnessing the process. It's the final form, but I still feel like we're experiencing some of the process. Well, of I, 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 I love that. That plus the comment of the machine. I, I love that. It's uh, you, you, you made my day. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Great. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. This has been yeah, really a great uh, pleasure. I, I, I'm delighted to have had the chance. Thank you.